0: Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Tonight, I will be continuing the story, The Enchanted April, by Elizabeth von Arnim. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 2 Of course Mrs. Arbuthnot was not miserable. How could she be, she asked herself, when God was taking care of her. But she let that pass for the moment, unrepudiated, because of her conviction that here was another fellow creature in urgent need of her help, and not just boots and blankets and better sanitary arrangements this time, but the more delicate help of comprehension of finding the exact right words. The exact right words, she presently discovered, after trying various ones about living for others and prayer, and the peace to be found in placing oneself unreservedly in God's hands. To meet all these words, Mrs. Wilkins had other words, incoherent, and yet, for the moment at least, till one had had more time, difficult to answer. The exact right words were a suggestion that it would do no harm to answer the advertisement. Non-committal, mere inquiry. And what disturbed Mrs. Arbuthnot about this suggestion was that she did not make it solely to comfort Mrs. Wilkins. She made it because of her own strange longing for the medieval castle. This was very disturbing. There she was, accustomed to direct, to lead to advise, to support, except Frederick, she long since had learned to leave Frederick to God. Being led herself, being influenced, and thrown off her feet, by just an advertisement, by just an incoherent stranger, it was indeed disturbing. She failed to understand her sudden longing for what was, after all, self-indulgence, when for years no such desire had entered her heart. There's no harm in simply asking, she said in a low voice, as if the vicar and the savings bank and all her waiting and dependent poor were listening and condemning. It isn't as if it committed us to anything, said Mrs. Wilkins, also in a low voice, but her voice shook. They got up simultaneously. Mrs. Arbuthnot had a sensation of surprise that Mrs. Wilkins should be so tall and went to a writing table, and Mrs. Arbuthnot wrote to Z. Box 1000, The Times, for particulars. She asked for all particulars, but the only one they really wanted was the one about the rent. They both felt that it was Mrs. Arbuthnot who ought to write the letter and to do the business part. Not only was she used to organizing and being practical, but she also was older and certainly calmer. And she herself had no doubt, too, that she was wiser. Neither had Mrs. Wilkins any doubt of this. The very way Mrs. Arbuthnot parted her hair suggested a great calm that could only proceed from wisdom, but if she was wiser, older, and calmer, Mrs. Arbuthnot's new friend nevertheless seemed to her to be the one who impelled incoherent she yet impelled she appeared to have apart from her need of help an upsetting kind of character, she had a curious infectiousness, she led one on. And the way her unsteady mind leaped at conclusions, wrong ones, of course, witnessed the one that she, Mrs. Arbuthnot, was miserable, the way she leaped at conclusions was disconcerting. Whatever she was, however, and whatever her unsteadiness, Mrs. Arbuthnot found herself sharing her excitement and her longing. And when the letter had been placed in the postbox, in the hall, and actually was beyond getting back again, both she and Mrs. Wilkins felt the same sense of guilt. It only shows, said Mrs. Wilkins in a whisper, as they turned away from the letter box, how immaculately good we've been all our lives. The very first time we do anything our husbands don't know about we feel guilty. I'm afraid I can't say I've been immaculately good, gently protested Mrs. Arbuthnot. A little uncomfortable, this fresh example of successful leaping at conclusions for she had not said a word about her feeling of guilt. Oh, but I'm sure you have. I see you being good, and that's why you're not happy. She shouldn't say things like that, thought Mrs. Arbuthnot. I must try and help her not to. Aloud she said gravely. I don't know why you insist that I am not happy. When you know me better, I think you'll find that I am. And I'm sure you don't mean really that goodness. If anyone could attain it, Makes one unhappy. Yes, I do, said Mrs. Wilkins. Our sort of goodness does. We have attained it, and we are unhappy. There are miserable sorts of goodness and happy sorts. The sort we'll have at the medieval castle, for instance, is the happy sort. That is supposing we go there, said Mrs. Arbuthnot restrainingly. She felt that Mrs. Wilkins needed holding on to. After all, we've only written just to ask. Anybody may do that. I think it quite likely we will find the conditions impossible, and even if they are not, probably by tomorrow we shall not want to go. I see us there, was Mrs. Wilkins' answer to that. All this was very unbalancing. Mrs. Arbuthnot, as she presently splashed through the dripping streets on her way to a meeting she was to speak at, was in an unusually disturbed condition of mind. She had, she hoped shown herself very calm to Mrs. Wilkins, very practical and sober, concealing her own excitement. But she was really extraordinarily moved. And she felt happy, and she felt guilty, and she felt afraid. And she had all the feelings, though this she did not know, of a woman who was come away from a secret meeting with her lover. That, indeed, was what she looked like when she arrived late on her platform. She, the open-browed Looked almost furtive as her eyes fell on the staring wooden faces, waiting to hear her try and persuade them to contribute to the alleviation of the urgent needs of the Hampstead poor, each one convinced that they needed contributions themselves. She looked as though she were hiding something discreditable but delightful. Certainly, her customary clear expression of candor was not there, and its place was taken by a kind of suppressed and frightened pleasedness which would have led a more worldly-minded audience to the instant conviction of recent and probably impassioned lovemaking. Beauty, beauty, beauty. The words kept ringing in her ears as she stood on the platform, talking of sad things to the sparsely attended meeting. She had never been to Italy. Was that really what her nest egg was to be spent on after all? Though she didn't quite approve of the way mrs wilkins was introducing the idea of predestination into her immediate future just as if she had no choice just as if to struggle or even to reflect were useless it yet influenced her mrs wilkins's eyes had been the eyes of a seer some people were like that mrs arbuthnot knew and if mrs wilkins had actually seen her at the medieval castle it did seem probable that struggling would be a waste of time still, to spend her nest egg on self-indulgence. The origin of this egg had been corrupt, but she had at least supposed its end was to be creditable. Was she to deflect it from its intended destination, which alone had appeared to justify her keeping it, and spend it on giving herself pleasure? Mrs. Arbuthnot spoke on and on, so much practiced in the kind of speech that she could have said it all in her sleep and at the end of the meeting, her eyes dazzled by her secret visions, she hardly noticed that nobody was moved in any way whatever, least of all in the way of contributions. But the vicar noticed. The vicar was disappointed. Usually his good friend and supporter, Mrs. Arbuthnot, succeeded better than this. And what was even more unusual, she appeared, he observed, not even to mind. I can't imagine, he said to her as they parted, speaking irritably, for he was irritated both by the audience and by her. What these people are coming to? Nothing seems to move them. Perhaps they need a holiday, suggested Mrs. Arbuthnot. an unsatisfactory, a strange reply, the vicar thought. In February? He called after her, sarcastically. Oh no, not till April, said Mrs. Arbuthnot over her shoulder. Very odd, thought the vicar. Very odd indeed and he went home and was not perhaps quite Christian to his wife. That night in her prayers, Mrs. Arbuthnot asked for guidance. She felt she ought really to ask, straight out and roundedly, that the medieval castle shall already have been taken by someone else, and the whole thing thus be settled. But her courage failed her. Suppose her prayer were to be answered. No, she couldn't ask it. She couldn't risk it. And after all, she almost pointed this out to God, if she spent her present nest egg on a holiday, she could quite soon accumulate another. Frederick pressed money on her, and it would only mean, while she rolled up a second egg, that for her time her contributions to the parish charities would be less. And then it could be the next nest egg, whose original corruption would be purged away by the use to which it was finally put. For Mrs. Arbuthnot, who had no money of her own, was obliged to live on the proceeds of Frederick's activities, and her very nest-egg was a fruit posthumously ripened of ancient sin. The way Frederick made his living was one of the standing distresses of her life. He wrote immensely popular memoirs, regularly every year of the mistresses of kings. There were in history numerous kings who had mistresses, and there were still more numerous mistresses who had, had kings so that he had been able to publish a book of memoirs during each year of his married life, and even so there were greater, further piles of these ladies waiting to be dealt with. Mrs. Arbuthnot was helpless. Whether she liked it or not, she was obliged to live on the proceeds. He gave her a dreadful sofa once, out of the success of his Dubarry memoir, with swollen cushions and soft, receptive lap, and it seemed to her a miserable thing that there, in her very home, should flaunt this reincarnation of a dead old French sinner. Simply good, convinced that morality is a basis of happiness, the fact that she and Frederick should draw their sustenance from guilt, however much purged by the passage of centuries, was one of the secret reasons of her sadness. The more the memoired lady had forgotten herself, the more his book about her was read, and the more free-handed he was to his wife, and all that he gave her was spent. After adding slightly to her nest egg, for she did hope and believe that some day people would cease to want to read of wickedness, and then Frederick would be, needing of support, on helping the poor. The parish flourished because, to take a handful at random, of the ill behavior of the ladies Dubarry, Montespan, Pompadour, and even of learned Metternich. The poor where the filter through which the money was passed to come out, Mrs. Arbuthnot hoped, purified. She could do no more. She had tried in days gone by to think the situation out, to discover the exact right course for her to take, but had found it, as she had found Frederick, too difficult, and had left it, as she had left Frederick, to God. Nothing of this money was spent on her house or dress. Those remained except for the great soft sofa, austere. It was the poor who profited. Their very boots were stout with sins. But how difficult it had been. Mrs. Arbuthnot, groping for guidance, prayed about it to exhaustion. Ought she perhaps to refuse to touch the money, to avoid it, as she would have avoided the sins which were its source? But then, what about the parish's boots? She asked the vicar what he thought, And through much delicate language, evasive and cautious, it did finally appear that he was for the boots. At least she had persuaded Frederick, when first he began his terrible successful career. He only began it after their marriage. When she had married him, he had been a blameless official attached to the library of the British Museum, to publish the memoirs under another name so that she was not publicly branded. Hampstead read the books with glee and had no idea that their writer lived in its midst. Frederick was almost unknown even by sight in Hampstead. He never went to any of its gatherings. Whatever it was he did in the way of recreation was done in London, but he never spoke of what he did or whom he saw. He might have been perfectly friendless for any mention he ever made of friends to his wife. Only the vicar knew where the money for the parish came from, and he regarded it, He told Mrs. Arbuthnot, as a matter of honour, not to mention it. And at least her little house was not haunted by the loose lived ladies, for Frederick did his work away from home. He had two rooms near the British Museum, which was the scene of his exhumations, and there he went every morning, and he came back long after his wife was asleep. Sometimes he did not come back at all. Sometimes she did not see him for several days together. Then he would suddenly appear at breakfast having let himself in with his latchkey the night before, very jovial, good-natured, and free-handed, and glad, if she would allow him to give her something, a well-fed man, contented with the world, a jolly, full-blooded, satisfied man. And she was always gentle and anxious that his coffee should be as he liked it. He seemed very happy. Life, she often thought, however much one tabulated, was yet a mystery. There were always some people it was impossible to place. Frederick was one of them. He didn't seem to bear the remotest resemblance to the original Frederick. He didn't seem to have the least need of any of the things he used to say were so important and beautiful. Love, home, complete communion of thoughts, complete immersion in each other's interests. After those early painful attempts to hold him up to the point from which they had hand in hand so splendidly started. Attempts in which she herself had got terribly hurt, and the Frederick she supposed she had married was mangled out of recognition. She hung him up, finally by her bedside, as the chief subject of her prayers, and left him, except for those, entirely to God. She had loved Frederick too deeply to be able now to do anything but pray for him. He had no idea that He never went out of the house without her blessing going with him too, hovering, like a little echo of finished love, round that once-dare head. She didn't dare think of him as he used to be, as he had seemed to her to be in those marvellous first days of their marriage. Her child had died, she had nothing, nobody of her own to lavish herself on. The poor became her children, and God the object of her love. What could be happier than such a life? she sometimes asked herself. But her face, and particularly her eyes, continued sad. Perhaps when we're old, perhaps when we are both quite old, she would think, wistfully. Chapter 3 The owner of the medieval castle was an Englishman, a Mr. Briggs, who was in London at the moment, and wrote that it had beds enough for eight people exclusive of servants, three sitting rooms, battlements, dungeons, and electric light. The rent was £60 for the month, the servants' wages were extra, and he wanted references. He wanted assurances that the second half of his rent would be paid, the first half being paid in advance, and he wanted assurances of respectability from a solicitor, or a doctor, or a clergyman. He was very polite in his letter, explaining that his desire for references was what was usual and should be regarded as a mere formality. Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins had not thought of references, and they had not dreamed a rent could be so high. In their minds had floated sums like three guineas a week or less, seeing that the place was small and old. Sixty pounds for a single month staggered them. Before Mrs. Arbuthnot's eyes rose up boots, endless vistas, all the stout boots that sixty pounds would buy, and besides the rent there would be the servants' wages and the food and the railway journeys out and home. While, as for references, these did indeed seem a stumbling block, it did seem impossible to give any without making their plan more public than they had intended. They had both, even Mrs. Arbuthnot, lured for once away from perfect candor by the realization of the great saving of trouble and criticism an imperfect explanation, would produce. They both thought it would be a good plan to give out, each to her own circle, their circles being luckily distinct, that each was going to stay with a friend who had a house in Italy. It would be true as far as it went. Mrs. Wilkins asserted that it would be quite true, but Mrs. Arbuthnot thought it wouldn't be quite. And it was the only way, Mrs. Wilkins said, to keep Mellersh even approximately quiet. To spend any of her money just on the mare getting to Italy would cause him indignation. What he would say if he knew she was renting part of a medieval castle on her own account, Mrs. Wilkins preferred not to think. It would take him days to say it all. And this, although it was her own money, and not a penny of it had ever been his. But I expect, she said, your husband is just the same. I expect all husbands are alike in the long run. Mrs. Arbuthnot said nothing because her reason for not wanting Frederick to know was exactly the opposite. Frederick would not only be too pleased for her to go, he would not mind it in the least. Indeed, he would hail such a manifestation of self indulgence and worldliness with an amusement that would hurt, and urge her to have a good time and not to hurry home with a crushing detachment. Far better, she thought, to be missed by Mellersh. And to be sped by Frederick. To be missed, to be needed, from whatever motive, was, she thought, better than the complete loneliness of not being missed or needed at all. She therefore said nothing and allowed Mrs. Wilkins to leap at her conclusions unchecked. But they did, both of them, for a whole day, feel that the only thing to be done was to renounce the medieval castle. And it was in arriving at this bitter decision that they really realized how acute. Had been their longing for it. Then Mrs. Arbuthnot, whose mind was trained in the finding of ways out of difficulties, found a way out of the reference difficulty, and simultaneously Mrs. Wilkins had a vision revealing to her how to reduce the rent. Mrs. Arbuthnot's plan was simple and completely successful. She took the whole of the rent in person to the owner, drawing it out of her savings bank. Again, she looked furtive and apologetic as if the clerk must know the money was wanted for purposes of self-indulgence, and, going up with the six ten-pound notes in her handbag to the address near the Brompton Oratory, where the owner lived, presented them to him, waiving her right to pay only half. And when he saw her, and her parted hair, and soft dark eyes, and sober apparel, and heard her grave voice, he told her not to bother about writing round for those references. It'll be all right, he said, scribbling a receipt for the rent. Do sit down, won't you? Nasty day, isn't it? You'll find the old castle has lots of sunshine, whatever else it hasn't got. Husband going? Mrs. Arbuthnot, unused to anything but candour, looked troubled at this question, and began to murmur inarticulately, and the owner at once concluded that she was a widow, a war one, of course, for other widows were old and that he had been a fool not to guess it. Oh, I'm sorry, he said, turning red right up to his fair hair. I didn't mean. He ran his eye over the receipt he had written. Yes, I think it's all right, he said, getting up and giving it to her. Now, he added, taking the six notes she held out and smiling, for Mrs. Arbuthnot was agreeable to look at, I'm richer, and you're happier. I've got money, and you've got San Salvatore. I wonder which got his best. I think you know, said Mrs. Arbuthnot with a sweet smile. He laughed and opened the door for her. It was a pity the interview was over. He would have liked to ask her to lunch with him. She made him think of his mother, of his nurse, of all things kind and comforting, besides having the attraction of not being his mother or his nurse. I hope you'll like the old place, he said, holding her hand a minute at the door. The very feel of her hand, even through its glove, was reassuring. It was the sort of hand, he thought, that children would like to hold in the dark. In April, you know, it's simply a mass of flowers. And then there's the sea. You must wear white. You'll fit in very well. There are several portraits of you there. Portraits? Madonnas, you know. There's one on the stairs really exactly like you. Mrs. Arbuthnot smiled and said goodbye and thanked him. Without the least trouble, and at once, she had got him placed in his proper category. He was an artist and of an effervescent temperament. She shook hands and left, and he wished she hadn't. After she was gone, he supposed that he ought to have asked for those references, if only because she would think him so unbusinesslike not to. But he could as soon have insisted on references from a saint in a nimbus as from that grave sweet lady. Rose Arbuthnot. Her letter, making the appointment, lay on the table. Pretty name. That difficulty then was overcome. But there still remained the other one, the really annihilating effect of the expense on the nest eggs, and especially on Mrs. Wilkins's, which was in size, compared with Mrs. Arbuthnot's, as the egg of the plover to that of the duck. And this in its turn was overcome by the vision vouchsafed to Mrs. Wilkins revealing to her the steps to be taken for its overcoming. Having got San Salvatore, the beautiful, the religious name fascinated them. They, in their turn, would advertise in the agony column of the Times, and would inquire after two more ladies of similar desires to their own, to join them and share the expenses. At once the strain of the nest eggs would be reduced from half to a quarter. Mrs. Wilkins was prepared to fling her entire egg into the adventure, but she realized that if it were to cost even sixpence over her ninety pounds, her position would be terrible. Imagine going to Mellish and saying, I owe. It would be awful enough if some day circumstances forced her to say, I have no nest egg, but at least she would be supported in such a case by the knowledge that the egg had been her own. She therefore, though prepared to fling her last penny into the adventure, was not prepared to fling into it a single farthing That was not demonstrably her own, and she felt that if her share of the rent was reduced to £15 only, she would have a safe margin for the other expenses. Also, they might economize very much on food, gather olives off their own trees and eat them, for instance, and perhaps catch fish. Of course, as they pointed out to each other, they could reduce the rent to an almost negligible sum by increasing the number of sharers. They could have six more ladies instead of two if they wanted to, seeing that there were eight beds. But supposing the eight beds were distributed in couples in four rooms, it would not be altogether what they wanted, to find themselves shut up at night with a stranger. Besides, they thought that perhaps having so many would not be quite so peaceful. After all, they were going to San Salvatore for peace and rest and joy, and six more ladies, especially if they got into one bedroom might a little interfere with that. However, there seemed to be only two ladies in England at that moment who had any wish to join them, for they had only two answers to their advertisement. Well, we only want to, said Mrs. Wilkins, quickly recovering, for she had imagined a great rush. I think a choice would have been a good thing, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. You mean, because then we needn't have had Lady Caroline Dester? I didn't say that gently protested Mrs. Arbuthnot, We needn't have her, said Mrs. Wilkins. Just one more person would help us a great deal with the rent. We're not obliged to have two. But why should we not have her? She seems really quite what we want. Yes, she does from her letter, said Mrs. Wilkins doubtfully. She felt she would be terribly shy of Lady Caroline. Incredible as it may seem, seeing how they got into everything, Mrs. Wilkins had never come across any members of the aristocracy. They interviewed Lady Caroline and they interviewed the other applicant, Mrs. Fisher. Lady Caroline came to the club in Shaftesbury Avenue and appeared to be wholly taken up by one great longing, a longing to get away from everybody she had ever known. When she saw the club and Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins, she was sure that hair was exactly what she wanted. She would be in Italy a place she adored she would not be in hotels places she loathed she would not be seen with friends persons she disliked and she would be in the company of strangers who would never mention a single person she knew for the simple reason that they had not could not have and would not come across them she asked a few questions about the fourth woman and was satisfied with the answers mrs fisher of prince of wales terrace a widow She too would be unacquainted with any of her friends. Lady Caroline did not even know where Prince of Wales Terrace was. It's in London, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. Is it? said Lady Caroline. It all seemed most restful. Mrs. Fisher was unable to come to the club because, she explained by letter, she could not walk without a stick. Therefore, Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins went to her. But if she can't come to the club, how can she go to Italy? wondered Mrs. Wilkins aloud. We shall hear that from her own lips, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. From Mrs. Fisher's lips, they merely heard, in reply to delicate questioning, that sitting in trains was not walking about, and they knew that already. Except for the stick, however, she appeared to be a most desirable fourth, quiet, educated, elderly. She was much older than they or Lady Caroline. Lady Caroline had informed them she was twenty-eight, but not so old as to have ceased to be active-minded. She was very respectable indeed, and still wore a complete suit of black, though her husband had died, she told them, eleven years before. Her house was full of signed photographs of illustrious Victorian dead, all of whom she said she had known when she was little. Her father had been an eminent critic, and in his house she had seen practically everybody who was anybody in letters and arts. Carlyle had scouted her, Matthew Arnold had held her on his knee. Tennyson had sonorously railed her on the length of her pigtail. She animatedly showed them the photographs, hung everywhere on her walls, pointing to the signatures with her stick, and she neither gave any information about her own husband, nor asked for any about the husbands of her visitors, which was the greatest comfort. Indeed, she seemed to think that they were also widows, for on in inquiring who the fourth lady was to be, and being told it was a lady Caroline Dester, she said, Is she a widow too? And on their explaining that she was not, because she had not yet been married, observed with abstracted amiability, all in good time. But Mrs. Fisher's very abstractedness, and she seemed to be absorbed chiefly in the interesting people she used to know, and in their memorial photographs, and quite a good part of the interview was taken up by reminiscent anecdote of Carlyle, Meredith, Matthew Arnold, Tennyson, and a host of others. Her very abstractedness was a recommendation. She only asked, she said, to be allowed to sit quiet in the sun and remember. That was all Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins asked of their sharers. It was their idea of a perfect sharer that she would sit quiet in the sun and remember, rousing herself on Saturday evenings sufficiently to pay her share. Mrs. Fisher was very fond too, she said, of flowers, and once when she was spending a weekend with her father at Box Hill. Who lived at Box Hill? interrupted Mrs. Wilkins, who hung on Mrs. Fisher's reminiscences, intensely excited by meeting somebody who had actually been familiar with all the really and truly and undoubtedly great, actually seen them, heard them talking, touched them. Mrs. Fisher looked at her over the top of her glasses in some surprise. Mrs. Wilkins, in her eagerness to tear the heart out quickly of Mrs. Fisher's reminiscences, afraid that at any moment Mrs. Arbuthnot would take her away and she wouldn't have heard half, had already interrupted several times with questions which appeared ignorant to Mrs. Fisher. Meredith, of course, said Mrs. Fisher rather shortly. I remember a particular weekend, she continued. My father often took me, but I always remember this weekend particularly. Did you know Keats? eagerly interrupted Mrs. Wilkins. Mrs. Fisher, after a pause, said with sub-acid reserve, as she had been unacquainted with both Keats and Shakespeare. "'Oh, of course, how ridiculous of me!' cried Mrs. Wilkins, flushing scarlet. "'It's because,' she floundered, "'it's because the immortals somehow still seem alive, don't they? "'As if they were here, going to walk into the room in another minute, "'and one forgets they are dead. In fact,' One knows perfectly well they're not dead, not nearly so dead as you and I even now. She assured Mrs. Fisher, who observed her over the top of her glasses. I thought I saw Keats the other day, Mrs. Wilkins incoherently proceeded, driven on by Mrs. Fisher's look over the top of her glasses. In Hampstead, crossing the road in front of that house, you know, the house where he lived. Mrs. Arbuthnot said they must be going. Mrs. Fisher did nothing to prevent them. I really thought I saw him, protested Mrs. Wilkins, appealing for belief first to one and then to the other, while waves of colour passed over her face, and totally unable to stop because of Mrs. Fisher's glasses and the steady eyes looking at her over their tops. I believe I did see him. He was dressed in a... Even Mrs. Arbuthnot looked at her now, and in her gentlest voice said they would be late for lunch. It was at this point that Mrs. Fisher asked for references. She had no wish to find herself shut up for four weeks with somebody who saw things. It is true that there were three sitting rooms, besides the garden and the battlements at San Salvatore, so that there would be opportunities of withdrawal for Mrs. Wilkins. But it would be disagreeable to Mrs. Fisher, for instance, if Mrs. Wilkins were suddenly to assert that she saw Mr. Fisher. Mr. Fisher was dead, let him remain so. She had no wish to be told he was walking about the garden. The only reference she really wanted, for she was much too old and firmly seated in her place in the world for questionable associates to matter to her, was one with regard to Mrs. Wilkins's health. Was her health quite normal? Was she an ordinary, everyday, sensible woman? Mrs. Fisher felt that if she were given even one address, she might be able to find out what she needed. So she asked for references, and her visitors appeared to be much taken back, Mrs. Wilkins, indeed, was instantly sobered. So she asked for references, and her visitors appeared to be so much taken back. Mrs. Wilkins, indeed, was instantly sobered, that she added, it is usual. Mrs. Wilkins found her speech first, but, she said, aren't we the ones who ought to ask for something from you? And this seemed to Mrs. Arbuthnot, too, the right attitude. Surely it was they who were taking Mrs. Fisher into their party, and not Mrs. Fisher, who was taking them into it. For answer, Mrs. Fisher, leaning on her stick, went to the writing table, and in a firm hand wrote down three names, and offered them to Mrs. Wilkins, and the names were so respectable, more, they were so momentous, they were so nearly august, that just to read them was enough. The President of the Royal Academy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Governor of the Bank of England. Who would disturb such personages in their meditations with inquiries as to whether a female friend of theirs was all she should be? They have known me since I was little, said Mrs. Fisher. Everybody seemed to have known Mrs. Fisher since or when she was little. I don't think references are nice things at all between between ordinary decent women, burst out Mrs. Wilkins, made courageous by being, as she felt at bay for she very well knew that the only reference she could give without getting into trouble was showbread, and she had little confidence in that, as it would be entirely based on Mellish's fish. We're not business people. We needn't distrust each other. And Mrs. Arbuthnot said with a dignity that yet was sweet, I'm afraid references do bring an atmosphere into our holiday plan that isn't quite what we want, and I don't think we'll take yours up or give you any ourselves, so that I suppose you won't wish to join us, and she held out her hand and goodbye. Then Mrs. Fisher, her gaze diverted to Mrs. Arbuthnot, who inspired trust and liking even in tube officials, felt that she would be idiotic to lose the opportunity of being in Italy in the particular conditions offered, and that she and this calm browed woman between them would certainly be able to curb the other when she had her attacks. So she said, taking Mrs. Arbuthnot's offered hand. Very well, I wave references. She waved references. The two, as they walked to the station in Kensington High Street, could not help thinking that this way of putting it was lofty. Even Mrs. Arbuthnot, spendthrift of excuses for lapses, thought Mrs. Fisher might have used other words. And Mrs. Wilkins, by the time she got to the station, and the walk and the struggle on the crowded pavement with other people's umbrellas had warmed her blood actually suggested waving Mrs. Fisher. If there is any waving to be done, do let us be the ones who wave, she said eagerly. But Mrs. Arbuthnot, as usual, held on to Mrs. Wilkins, and presently, having cooled down in the train, Mrs. Wilkins announced that at San Salvatore, Mrs. Fisher would find her level. I see her finding her level there, she said, her eyes very bright. Whereupon Mrs. Arbuthnot, sitting with her quiet hands folded, turned over in her mind how best she could help Mrs. Wilkins not to see quite so much, or at least, if she must see, to see in silence. Good night.